Dear Lord, we come before you and just lift up our hearts unto you. Bring in all of our worries, all of our supplications, all of our anxieties, all of our needs, and all the burdens of our hearts unto you. And just thanking you that you have been with us, you are always with us, and you will be with us. And knowing that you are God that never changes, the faithful one, the one that lives forever, we have the confidence to lay down our hearts and our burdens unto you. And we ask that may you open our hearts to receive what you have for us. Amen. All right. Good morning again, everybody. Thank you to Kephas very much for leading us in worship through song this morning. Um, I, I hope it's not just me, but I hope that as we're reading through Hebrews, right, I know we preached through it uh, a little over a year ago, but I do pray that as we kind of read through these New Testament epistles in order that they are speaking and feeding us, right? As we read Hebrews 6 this morning, as I'm standing up here reading it, being touched by the fact that our call in this life is a call to patience, as we wait and pursue the Lord in faithfulness, there's nothing we can do but be patient and wait on our Lord, right? And especially as our churches, we find ourselves in this situation of now replanting and really starting over from what we were 10 years ago. What else can we do but be patient and wait on the Lord? As Just as Abraham, as the author of Hebrews writes, says, Abraham was patient. And waiting for the promise of his son, Isaac, to be born. As, and then even longer, waiting and waiting for the eternal son, the promised heir to arrive. Which he didn't even see in this earthly life, but he trusted and waited. And that is a, a model and example for us. And I was just touched by that this morning as I was standing here reading Hebrews 6. And it has very little to do with the passage this morning, but it was something I was thinking as I was standing here reading it this morning. So this morning, we're going to continue through John. Chapter 7 is where we're going to be if you want to get there. Um, I want you to think of a movie or a, a book or maybe several movies or several books that have this character within them and this character within this book or movie that you like is an enigma we don't really understand him we don't really know him there's a lot of rumors and theories and confusion around who this character might be so I hope you have somebody in your mind from a movie or a book that you are thinking of as I was thinking through this of course my my first thought is Lord of the Rings is those of you who know me know that that is my favorite book. And in, in the book, it's not the movie, so if you've seen the movies and never read the book, you'd have no idea what I'm talking about. But in the book, there's this character in the early stages. His name is, his name is Tom Bombadil. And he's a crazy kind of guy who lives in the forest on his own with his wife. And, and that's kind of it. He's only in the book for two chapters, and then he disappears, but he's got these powers in which he can kind of control the ring. If you know anything about the Lord of the Rings, the, the ring is, is a powerful uh, uh, tool that is evil. And it, and it can control people and, and wreaks all sorts of havoc. 
But when Tom Bombadil takes the ring, it has no effect on him whatsoever. None. But he's only in the book for two chapters and he disappears. He's an enigma. And there's theories and books. Like I read a book last winter just about who people think Tom Bombadil is. He's a mystery. He's an enigma. There's a lot of confusion around who this person is. There's a lot of confusion about what role he has in Middle Earth. There's a lot of confusion about what purpose he serves in the book. And as we walk through these chapters of John 6 and John 7 especially, we see this similar confusion around Jesus. As the people are gathered for this festival, there is confusion. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? They don't know. The people don't know. The authorities think they know. But there's confusion around him. But unlike Tom Bombadil, Jesus for himself reveals who he is. He tells us. He tells the people who are listening. He tells us in his word exactly who he is. It answers that question for us. But in the day that these events were happening in John 7, there was massive confusion around who this man was in the temple teaching on this day. So let's read this text together, then we will pray, and we will begin. John 7, 25 to 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? You see the confusion amongst the people, right? Isn't, isn't this the guy they want to murder? Isn't this the one who they are wanting to kill? Do they know something about him that we don't know? There's confusion. Verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again, we hear that phrase. Yet, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's pray. Father, this morning feed us by your word, Lord. May John 7... May your scripture, may your word feed us by your spirit, Lord, so we may know you and we may be shaped to be like you, to lead lives of holiness mirrored after your son. Father, feed us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so our sermon summary. All right, the, the thrust of this passage, the, the point, or the several points, all wrapped up into one. Our summary this morning is this, that though our understanding of God is finite, 
It's limited. We can only know so much. He reveals himself by his word, lowercase w, and he reveals himself by his word, capital W, the Lagos, the Lagos of John 1. He reveals himself by his word to such an extent that we may know of our need for salvation and how to be granted it. So though our knowledge of God is limited, it is finite, God has revealed himself by his word, his word, little w, word, capital W, Jesus, so that we may know of our need for salvation and how to be granted it. But the revelation of this word, the revelation of this word, the reality of what this word tells us will unite and it will divide. It will unite and it will divide. That is the thrust of chapter 6 and chapter 7, right? Because as we read these passages, just to get into the context and to kind of discuss this thrust of the passage, we have Jesus who has kind of finished feeding the 5,000. He walks on the water. He ends up in Capernaum. And there at Capernaum, he has his brothers, his, his, not his disciples, but his blood brothers, Mary's other sons. He has his physical brothers, and they tell him as this feast arrives, right? The feast of booths, this income, or feast of ingathering, this harvest festival in which they're celebrating the 40 years of wandering. They live in tents, and they kind of camp in the city center as they remember their wandering for 40 years. As they celebrate the harvest, September, October, his brothers tell him, go. If you are going to be known by the public, if you are going to be who you say you are, remember they don't have faith, they don't believe in their brother as the Messiah, go. You can't, you can't hide and be known as the Messiah. To be known, you have to go and do so publicly. So he says, no, now is not my time. My time has not yet come, so I will not yet be going. And so he goes up privately. He doesn't go up in a big caravan. He doesn't go up with his brothers. He doesn't go up in crowds of people like as, as teenagers do as they go to the county fair, the state fair. They go in groups and then hang out there together. Jesus went by himself, privately, the scriptures tell us. And he's there, and he's wandering, and he, he hears people talking about him, right? This is what we were on a few weeks ago. Some of these people say he's a good man. Some of these people say he's a lunatic, and he leads them astray. He hears these people talking. And then he goes into the temple, and he begins teaching. So remember, his time has not yet come, but here he is in the middle of the temple teaching these people, and they're shocked by what they're hearing. How does this guy who has never learned to read, is essentially what they say. How does this guy who has not learned to read, he does not know his letters, teach like this? Where does his authority come from? And it is at this point in which we start to see, as I said before, with the thrust of this passage, it is at this point in which we start to see the unity and the division that will face the rest of Christ's life. So this week, right, last week, Jesus is teaching. He stands there and he confronts the Jewish authorities about their teaching of the Sabbath. And he says, you've got it all wrong. But 
Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to see the responses to this teaching. We're going to see the responses to Jesus. So this week, as we read through the passage, we kind of get this viewpoint of those who are sympathetic to Jesus. Right? The people who are responding in verses 25, 26, and 27, the people, not the authorities, they seem sympathetic to him. Right? They're, they're thinking like, isn't this the guy that they wanted to kill? Maybe they know something about him. Maybe they know he's the Messiah. There's a sympathy towards this man. And as we see at the end of the passage, what happens? People come to believe in him. We get into next week, not to steal Matthew's thunder, but as we get into next week, we see the opposite viewpoint. We see the antagonism. We see the viewpoint of the authorities and those who want to kill him. Then we get into the week following, so one, two, two weeks from now, we see Jesus standing and confronting these people. He teaches again and he confronts them. And then finally at the end of chapter 7, what do we see? The ultimate division. The real divide of the people. Right? The subheading there in the ESV is the division among the people. So you see here, the thrust of chapter 7 and from chapter 6 is this man now is going to divide. We don't, there's confusion about him. They don't fully get it. But he is going to divide. And so... That's kind of how we ended up where we are. And that is where we are going. But this man, this Messiah, this Jesus, that they don't fully understand, he unites and he divides. People respond. They are forced to respond. And it's either one or the other. He unites or he divides. So, our points for this morning. Number one, our first point. Our understanding of Jesus should not be shaped by cultural or societal authorities. And also, nor should we forsake our own study under presumption or under assumption. Right? So our views, our understanding of Jesus should not be shaped by culture, by society, just from overhearing what people have to say. And we should never presume or assume, but we should always check, like the Bereans, to know the word. Verses 25 to 27. The confusion. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Right? There's already confusion. This guy. Isn't this the one that we're hearing rumors about? Isn't this the one that people, that the authorities, that the religious leaders, isn't this the guy they want to get arrested? And here he is. They're wondering. And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing. You see the confusion. Here he is in the middle of the temple standing in front of people talking and teaching and they say nothing. Do not confront him. They do not arrest him. What is happening? And they continue. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Do these people, do these authorities, do these Pharisees, do they know something about this man? 
that they aren't telling? Do they know something about him that they haven't told us? And here's where the teaching part comes in. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So you see the confusion. There's this man, he walks in there, there's mumbling and chattering and talking amongst the crowds. And he stands in front and he teaches and he confronts the Pharisees. And there's confusion. And they connect him to the Christ. They start to recognize and put two and two together. This guy's different. This guy's authority is not the same as the authority of the people who regularly teach us. This guy is different. And they start to connect him to the Christ. Now remember, Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title, the Messiah. They start to connect and realize, okay, this Jesus, the works that this man has done in the past few days, past few months, it's different. Is he the Messiah? But then there's confusion because they recognize they want him killed, but no one's doing anything about it. And then there's this question of, we know where this man comes from. If the Messiah comes, no one's going to know. You see the confusion. You see the confusion. Now, Jesus draws attention because of who he is. Because he is the Christ, because he is the Messiah, people cannot help. But to be attentive. People cannot help to be attentive. That attention doesn't always mean positive. That doesn't always mean support. That does mean antagonism. That does mean opposition. And as a Christian, as a disciple of Christ, this attention is unavoidable. Jesus tells us as much. As Christ followers, you will have to follow after me. You will have to take up your cross and follow me. Matthew, he says this. Matthew 5, Jesus tells us, You are the salt of the earth, but the salt, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And here's what he says to his followers, to those people who are living as salt to the earth. Here's what he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. You see, as a follower of Christ, you will face Maybe persecution, but you will get attention. You will get attention. The other day at work, I was had a last last Sunday. I had a um, a coach's education meeting during the Bills game, and uh, I had to sit there and kind of half pay attention to the coach's education and kind of watch the Bills game. But somebody asked me, one of my peers, she asked me, "Why do you like the Bills so much? Why do you like this football team so much?" I was I was born in Buffalo. I, 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 that's, that's who we have. There's nothing else in Buffalo except the Buffalo Bills. And I told her, I said, I love, here's the things I love the most in this world. I said, I love Jesus, I love my wife, my children, and I love the Buffalo Bills. 
And she looked at me. When I said Jesus, she's like, what do you, okay, that was, didn't expect that to be the first thing you said. But that's what I mean. If you are a professor of Christ, if you are a, one who proclaims Christ as yours, Lord and Savior, you will have attention. Good, bad, who knows? You will have attention, though, because Jesus tells us as much. And he tells us this. Later in Matthew, he says this. Behold, talking to his disciples, but applicable to us now. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. You see, followers of Christ will gain attention because Christ is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He draws attention, and as Christ followers, as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we have the same things in store for us. Now you see, as we talked about this first point here a minute ago, There are pressures around us to define for us who Jesus is. There are television shows. There is media. There is all sorts of talking heads out there trying to tell us or inform us of what we should and are to believe. Defining for us who Jesus is. And this is true here in this passage. You see, as they wonder, these people, the crowds, those listening, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Are these authorities, these Pharisees, these religious teachers, these people who are learned in the Bible, in the Old Testament, are these people aware? Do they know something about this Jesus that we don't know? And to jump ahead to next week, again, to steal Matthew's thunder a little bit, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering. You see, they heard the people talking about this Christ, this Jesus as the Christ, and what was their response? The chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. There is something happening here. There is a recognition that this man is not like anything else. As they were wondering last week when we did the earlier verses. Maybe they're afraid that their glorification will be lost. Maybe they're afraid that they will lose their own glory and their own standing. But there is some sort of hiding. Some sort of wondering and questioning and silencing of who this man is. And the same is true today, is it not? If, if you look at the, the church in China, if you look at some of these Middle Eastern countries, even some of the direction that American society is going, 
authorities, those in charge, those leading, many of whom will be and are antagonistic to Christ, are antagonistic to who he is. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsels together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see the the confidence that the author of Psalm 2 is writing about, these nations stand in opposition to Christ. They laugh in mockery at God. But Psalm 2 also tells us, he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, here's what he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, Jesus the Messiah, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We hear that in this gospel, right? Referring to Jesus. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, the Christ will will inherit the earth. He will be king. He is king. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, warning the kings of the earth, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There are those who will seek to manipulate the truth of the gospel, for the sake of their own glory. As Jesus tells us in past chapters, earlier in chapter 7, last week when we, or last few weeks when we've done chapter 6, the Pharisees, their eyes are blinded, their ears are shut, as Isaiah tells them, because they are seeking their own glory. And in seeking their own glory, what are they doing? They are stifling the Christ. They're hiding him, pushing him to the side, arresting him so as to get rid of him. And so here we we, we come to verse 27. And this is a confusing verse, right? The people in the crowds are wondering, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So I said earlier, as I stated the point to chapter 1, right, we are not to assume and to presume without assessing people's teaching, like the Bereans going to the text. Here's why. These people who were listening to the Pharisees, they weren't learned men. They weren't men who knew their letters. They were people entering the temple and were trusting the teachers to be teaching them, to be sharing the Old Testament scriptures and teaching them faithfully. And there was a teaching that arose. There was confusion amongst the religious authorities, the Jewish authorities at the time. There were two kind of avenues of thinking. One was Jesus, or the Messiah, was just going to pop up on the scene. He would just randomly one day show up. And they would have 
and that would be it. He would, he would pop up on the scene, he would conquer the Romans, he would free the Jews, he would perform all these signs and wonders, but he would just randomly show up. And that's what they're saying here. They're echoing this teaching. But there's also this teaching that was prevalent in ancient Jewish uh, uh, religious authorities that, as we know from the scriptures, that they do know where he comes from. What does Micah 5, 2 tell us? Right? This would be a passage that these men would know. They would know these passages. If I can get there. Micah 5, 2 tells us, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. You see, these men who are teaching these people who are now confused about this man, do you think they would have known Micah 5 too? Certainly. These were the religious experts. These were the experts on the Old Testament. They would have known of this passage that from Bethlehem, as Micah tells us, from this little town of Bethlehem, a ruler, the ruler, one who has been told from days past, Adam, Eve, Genesis 3, that your heir will crush the head of the serpent. This foretold son, this foretold ancient, ancient of days leader will arise out of Bethlehem. So some believed he would just pop up out of nowhere, kind of taking that from Malachi 3. Others believed that yes, he would come from Bethlehem. But the ironic thing is, they claim to know where he's from. But as we, again, I'm kind of stealing from later, but as we get into the later passages of 41 and 42, what are the people saying? Others said, this is the Christ. So there's profession. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? They thought that Jesus was, was from Galilee. But then they echo the scripture that I just read. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? The village where David was. You see the confusion. You see the confusion. They think they know. But the ironic part is, as we read this whole passage, as we read through the later chapters, they don't even realize that Jesus is from Bethlehem. They are presuming to know. They are presuming to be aware. But they don't. They don't. And Jesus, as we get into part two here, as we get into point two, Jesus corrects them. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm skipping something here that needs to be said. As I mentioned earlier, we cannot function under presumption or assumption. As these men didn't, couldn't read, they were, they were listening to the teaching. They were misled. It's not the first time that the religious Pharisees and teachers of Israel have misled their people. Throughout the books of uh, the minor prophets and the major prophets, we see regular, regular rebuking because of the religious authorities leading the people astray. And this is why, this is why the Reformation is so important. Because these men couldn't read, 
They, they didn't know how to read these texts for themselves. And why, like the Bereans, we must examine the scriptures. We must check what is being taught. You must check me as I stand here and preach to make sure and ensure that I am teaching. And you are not just assuming and presuming that I am correct. William Tyndale, one of the early reformers, 15, early 1500s, even I think he probably was born in the late 1400s, early, early reformers, in talking to a Catholic friend of his, the Catholic scholar, this was five, six hundred years ago, he says, as he's translating the Bible into English for the people of England, he says to this Catholic scholar that I will make a plowboy know the scriptures better than you. You see, the Catholic Church, they had the Bible in what? Latin. They had the Mass in Latin. If you didn't know Latin, guess what? You're out of luck. You're out of luck. And if you did know Latin, your best bet is to understand what the teaching is telling you. But William Tyndale, translating the Bible to English, killed for it. He will teach the plowboy, a kid, pushing a, a tractor out in a field to know the scriptures better than that Catholic scholar. As the Bible has translated into the native language. You see, one of the important pieces of the Reformation was the taking of the Bible in Latin and putting it into the common language of the people. So that way they can hear and read and know for themselves by the revealing of the Spirit. Luther did the same thing in Germany, right? As he translated the Bible into German. So that way the Germans could understand and take and read for themselves. Even today, Tyndale Bible Publishers, you've heard, you've heard that name, right? Taken from the William Tyndale. They are translating Bibles into as many languages as they possibly can to distribute them throughout the world. So that way people can hear and read and know what the Word tells them. So that way, they don't have to rely on hearing the teaching of people like Benny Hinn and these false teachers and Kenneth Copeland and these men who are leading people astray. They can take and read the Bible, God's inerrant word, in their native tongue, so that, that way they may know, as these people were wondering, as these Jewish lay people of Jerusalem were wondering, is this man the Christ? And they, they had this confusion about the teaching. They had this confusion about what they should know, where the, where the Christ was to come from. So let us not forsake our own study of the Scriptures. We must be informed by God's word, by his spirit, opening our eyes and our hearts. And this word shapes, molds, leads, guides, shows, teaches who our Savior is. So, instead of taking the teaching we hear and 
presuming upon its accuracy and assuming that it is correct. We must shape and mold our theology and our lives around God's revelation through his word. You see, as Jesus overhears the muttering, isn't this the one they want to kill? Isn't this the guy they're seeking to arrest? Isn't this the Christ? But wait, we know, we know where this guy comes from, or at least they think they know where this guy comes from. So it can't be Jesus, it can't be the Messiah, because we know where he comes from, and we're not supposed to know where the Messiah comes from. Jesus stops and he teaches. You see, in the midst of confusion, Jesus doesn't let them just carry on in their confusion. He does what? He speaks his word. He teaches. In the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our wondering, in the midst of what we hear and need to assess and check, where do we go? To his word. Jesus, 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, it's kind of being ironic here, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. Meaning, him who sent me is real. He is really the one who sent me. And you do not know. Him you do not know. He says to them, you think you know me. You think you know where I'm coming from. But I have not come on my own. Remember what he said last week? Someone who comes and speaks of his own is seeking glory for himself. Jesus is highlighting here that he is not coming to seek his own glory. He is coming to seek the glory of the one who sent him, the Father. He did not come on his own. He is not seeking his glory. And you do not know, he says to them, you do not know the one who sent me. You really, they really do not know. All right, what does he what does he teach them in chapter 6? As he's in Galilee on the side of the mountain feeding them with the 5,000. Uh, he, he, he tells them that they really don't quite get it. They really don't quite know where he comes from. Who he comes from. And they misunderstand. They have pride in who they believe they are, right? These are, this is Israel, the children of God, God's chosen people, and they stand in that pride that they are better than their pagan Gentile neighbors because they are God's chosen people. And in this presumption, in this presumption, they find great, great error. As Isaiah, I've, I continuously reference Isaiah as, as Isaiah was, was sent to the people. God told them, right? God told Isaiah to say to them that you will be blind and you will not hear. And they are blind and they do not hear. As Jesus is the Word incarnate, as He is the Logos of John 1, and the Spirit is proceeding from the Father and the Son to inform and steer this revelation, we would do well to attend to His Word. We would do well to attend to His Word. We've talked about this in, in Sunday school, right, as, as Jesus here is stopping and teaching and confronting. We have general revelation, right, Romans tells us of, of how the creation around us shows his invisible attributes. It reveals who he is. 
And yet just knowing God's existence isn't enough to save us. We also know of special revelation. God's word revealed to us through men inspired by the spirit recorded over history. Psalm 19 talks about that for the sake of time. I will not read it. But Psalm 19 And to continue to hammer this point home, and I feel as if I'm repeating myself, but I think it's necessary. In the midst of our confusion, there is only one place that we turn to know God's word, God's truth, who he is. The error of the Jews, right? Their mistakes in presuming upon whom God is, their false understanding of what God's word tells them. We must turn to this special revelation. For it reveals who God is. It reveals God's attributes. Many, many months ago, it was actually uh, over a year ago now, when we were back still at Highlands Latin School, we began working through the abstract of principles, right? Our confession at this church that we hold to. And I was teaching through the very first chapter of the abstract of principles, and we asked these three questions that have historically been asked throughout church history about who God is. Is God real? Does God exist? What is God, and what qualities does he possess? We worked through each of those things, right? We, we are already functioning under the assumption that God is real. That's why we're here. Who God is. What God is. We can't know him by his essence. Right? We can look at a, at a chart of animals of the animal kingdom and we can read all of the Latin names of a dog and a cat and a blah, 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 blah. Whatever animal you can think of, you can read their Latin scientific names that tell us the essence of that creature. However, God's essence is unknown. But it is shared amongst God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It is unknown. And so God reveals for us who he is in his word. And we see that in the qualities he possesses. Right? What qualities does he have? We talked about the attributes of God last week. And being conformed into the image of God. And these these attributes are revealed to us through scripture. And throughout creation or throughout redemption history... God has engaged with his people through these covenants as he condescends, he comes down, he engages with people through these covenants. We see these covenants with who? Adam, the covenant of works in the garden. Do not partake of the fruit because if you do, you will surely die. We see this covenant with Noah that he is chosen and he is elect and through him there is this promise that the world will never be destroyed again until it is time because from this people there will come a savior. We see Abraham and this promise, this covenant that is made with Abraham. We see the covenant with Moses. We see this covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And finally and fully we see this covenant with Christ. We must turn to God's word to know unlike these people you do not know he you from God from these uh, from the one whom sent me you do not know him we must turn to the word 
our lives must be lived in light of who God is and the realities of his commands and his covenants and his ultimately work with Christ. And finally, the realities of these things, the realities of these covenants, the reality of God's condescending to us through his Son will unite and divide. Will unite and divide. Verse 30. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. Remember he is teaching, he confronts them that they do not know where he comes from. They really do not know the Father. They really are not practicing in the right way. And so they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand upon him because his time has not yet come. So there's this one group seeking to arrest, seeking to take, seeking to put away, ultimately to kill, And then we get verse 31, where I want to spend more time. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so you see, as Jesus is, what, he, chapter 5, he feeds, or he heals the man at the pool on the Sabbath, they see that. Chapter 6, he teaches, and then he feeds 5,000 plus with a few loaves and a few fishes. Then he disappears overnight, and they know he's missing. He's walked on this water, and he's gone the next morning, and they go to hear him and find him, and he teaches them some more, teaches them in a very lengthy passage of John 6. And he tells them, I am the bread of life. I am the one who has come down from heaven. If you eat of this bread, you will live forever. He starts to tell them who he is. He starts to teach and lead. And then he shows up at this festival of, of the booths, this feast of the booths. And he begins teaching again. And what do we see? What do we see? Some people deny him. John 6, there are many who leave him. His teaching is too hard. But yet here at the end of, or middle of John 7, what do we see? We see opening of hearts and opening of minds throughout the crowd. We see this recognition of what this man has done. Can there be someone who does more signs than this guy? You see, they start to have their eyes and ears open. You see, the inclination of the heart turns, softens towards this man. And the correlating response that occurs. We see this throughout the book of Acts, do we not? As Jesus rises again, as then in the days immediately after his resurrection, they're, they're, they're hiding. But then Acts 2 shows up. And Peter preaches in this very place, in Jerusalem the Pentecost, and many come to know him. Eyes and ears are turned on. Hearts are bent towards him. 
And what do we see throughout the book of Acts? As these eyes and ears are opened, the church expands. And there's still division. It divides. There is still Saul of Tarsus who wants people killed who are following Jesus, who celebrates the death of Stephen. There is still ancient Rome who martyrs those who follow Jesus. There are still these cities that drive the Christians out. But yet, even in the midst of the hostility and the antagonism that come from the authorities, both religious and state, the Romans... Hearts are opened, minds are opened, and the gospel goes forward. So today, where is your heart at with this man, the Christ, the Messiah, Is your heart in one place of antagonism, doubt, frustration, opposition, or is your heart being bent towards this Messiah? Because there's no in-between. There's no agnosticism. There is no I don't know. There is none of that. That is, a, that is a fallacy. If there is an agnostic point of view, it is in opposition. So which way is your, your heart leaning? Where is your heart this morning? Is it like this crowd who recognizes and sees that this man is the Christ? Or is it like those who are seeking to be rid of him? Who want him smothered, hidden, put aside. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation of your son so that we may know our Savior. We thank you that through your word, by your spirit, you reveal to our hearts, Lord, this great plan of redemption and salvation that you have carried out. So, Lord, this morning, let us bow our heads, bend our knees in worship and submission to our great Savior in praise and worship for the work he has done, purchasing us out of sin and death and restoring us into a right relationship with you, Father. Out of nothing but pure grace and mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.